0: Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It sure has been a while since I've been on the air last. For some of you, you were probably beginning to wonder, when would Kirk come back on the air to do another uh, episode segment of Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence by Harlow Giles Unger? Well, I have good news to report. I am on the air, and we will be doing... Another episode to this series. How ironic that this episode is the final uh, one for this uh, segment series. It has been an amazing one, and I have no doubts, based upon the um, overall number of plays per each uh, podcast segment of the series, that many of you have come away learning more about Thomas Paine than you previously had known uh, beforehand. Even I myself said the same thing, too, when I first read this book back in the spring of last year. I learned a great deal about Thomas Paine, because prior to reading this book, the only thing that I really knew about him, I take it back, there were only a couple of things I knew. Well, for one, publishing Common Sense and The American Crisis. These are the times that try men's souls. I knew he was from England, but I didn't know exactly his true uh, background upbringing was like until having read this book. It's always easy to assume that many of our forefathers came from um, well-to-do upbringings, but we should be reminded of the fact that there were at least seven or eight of the 56 signers who signed the Declaration of Independence, who actually um, hailed from um, Europe, most notably uh, England, Scotland, and Ireland, and who um, emigrated over to the New World as um, young men being uh, to America. So we should keep in mind that um, many of our forefathers were not automatically born into privilege, and I think it's fair to say by now that we know Thomas Paine himself was not born into privilege. So, in this final uh, podcast uh, segment to Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence, we're going to learn, really, about Paine's final years. And I'm beginning to wonder, or we shall find out, whether or not those last years of his life were good, or if it was a combination of both good and bad. However, I should point out that not all of our forefathers were able to die peacefully some of our forefathers died in debt and not just uh, a couple thousand dollars in debt some died uh deeply in debt most notably thomas jefferson he died om- almost 110,000 dollars in debt so let's let's just keep in mind that while yes many of our forefathers um married into families who had money it was one thing to show those possessions But when it came to paying off debts, that might as well be a whole other story onto itself. But anyways, let's uh, begin this uh, final podcast segment of Thomas Paine and the Clarion Call for American Independence with our first lead-off question. What's significant about October the 30th of 1802? Well, let me ask you all this. Who is president of the United States in 1802? He would have been Inaugurated, uh, sworn in as our nation's third president the year uh, before, in uh, March of 1801. Was that Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Madison, or James Monroe? The answer is choice A, Thomas Jefferson. So, anyways, what's significant about October 30th of 1802? Does it have anything to do with Thomas Paine? Well, the answer is yes. Well, it turns out on this date, Thomas Paine officially arrived back onto American soil in Baltimore, Maryland, after being away in Europe, most notably England and France, for 15 years. So think about this, folks. From the time of uh, 1787 into um, just before uh, 1802 ends, Thomas Paine has been away 15 years you know, Thomas Paine saw a lot in uh, Europe, for better and for worse. Is it? F- I'm beginning to wonder, though, when Thomas Paine comes back to America, is it the same America he saw before leaving? Or is it an America that um, has changed for some good and for some not good? It's a mixture of both. You know, yes, there are some changes that are for the better, and then there are some changes that are not. Despite his ambitions for visiting um, such places like Washington, D.C., to finding his properties, or rather his homes, in good condition, Thomas Paine um, saw his return to America being one where people themselves were extremely divided. Were they divided politically, or were they more divided about his return? Well, there were people um, divided politically, most notably in Congress. I mean, you've got the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, or the Jeffersonian Republicans. After all, Thomas Jefferson's um, political victory uh, or presidential uh, victory in 1800 was significant, largely in part because it ushered in... Um, a transfer of uh, political parties like never before. Uh, George Washington and John Adams were Federalists, and the Federalists pretty much controlled Congress. When Thomas Jefferson became president, the Federalists were no longer in power, not just by means of the executive branch, they lost control of the legislature. So that's a revolution unto itself, because never before had there been a transfer of power from one party to another. So yes, that's a big deal, but Thomas Paine's presence, his return, has become an even bigger deal, because newspapers everywhere have written up um, all kinds of um, stories about his return. There are newspapers who are welcoming him back, and there are newspapers criticizing Paine of his reemergence. We have to keep in mind too, folks, that even in the time that our forefathers lived, uh, newspapers were not always friendly. There were newspapers that attracted one group of political um, people, say, from the Federalist side, and then you had newspapers that attracted uh, those of the Anti-Federalists or Jeffersonian Republicans. So in other words, the newspapers themselves were full of partisanship. So for Thomas Paine, you know, yes, he can, for every newspaper he reads that welcomes his return back to America, he's going to read be probably reading the same number of newspapers that are totally against his uh, coming back. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, and I'll just mention it here. The Federalist Party dominated politics from the executive to the legislative branches in Congress during George Washington and John Adams' presidencies from 1789 to March of 1801. Now, prior to Thomas Paine's uh, return to America, um, he starts the first of other, um, what I hate to say, but it is probably true, Literary mistakes. One of them, he had already received criticism for being the age of uh, reason in terms of questioning uh, the church, not just the not just the Catholic Church or the Church of England, the Anglican Church. But as we all know, the age of reason was about just attacking church and uh, also um, also attacking um, where Jesus stood. But. In the summer of 1796, uh, Thomas Paine published letter to George Washington, okay? And this, in 1796, folks, you know, George Washington has really about a year left in his presidency, so I would like to think that Thomas Paine wrote him a letter thanking him for his services to his country, I mean, after all... Being president of the United States is the highest um, position for George Washington to have attained besides being having been commander of the Continental Army in the American Revolution. But it turns out, sadly, that Paine's letter, or Paine's, um, maybe we would call it a pamphlet, but this uh, document titled Letter to George Washington did not turn out to be so friendly. Paine assailed president washington assailed mean is another word for criticizing but Payne criticized president washington for being a leader whom catered to the wealthy the elite as well as accusing washington personally of of betraying thomas pain while imprisoned overseas in france there's a saying that i that we all have to be reminded of and of course i think we're all guilty of uh, making this mistake. I know sometimes I've made this mistake, but it it also comes down to how quickly we learn from it so that we try not to make the same mistake over and over. Sometimes people will tell others, hey, don't say everything that's on your mind. Obviously, Thomas Paine said a little bit too much that was on his mind in terms of uh, criticizing George Washington. He wasn't the first of our forefathers to criticize Washington. Uh, Thomas Jefferson made um, an an unfortunate error in criticizing George Washington, where he wrote a letter uh, to one of his overseers named Philip Mazai, or in Italian it would be Filippo Mazai, and the letter somehow got back to Washington. Washington recognized Jefferson's handwriting, and and after Washington read the letter that Jefferson wrote criticizing him, he severed his uh, friendship with Thomas Jefferson. So it just goes to show you right there that even our forefathers were not immune from um, making mistakes that um, in the political sense had ramifications that did in certain instances ruin friendships with other individuals. So Thomas uh, Paine, yes, I, I understand that being imprisoned overseas in France was a, a very uh, horrifying experience for him, knowing that he almost came close to dying but can we blame George Washington for this? No. After all, who had been hiding the real truth all along was Gouverneur Morris. It's a miracle that James Monroe came along when he was able to. I'm glad Gouverneur Morris stepped down from being ambassador to France because he was only looking after his own ambitions, his own personal desires. He, he didn't care about uh, Thomas Paine did George Washington know about this all along? No, he didn't. I mean, he knew Thomas Paine was overseas, but, you know, even Washington himself was blindsided by Governor Morris's actions. But for Thomas Paine to take his frustration out on George Washington, to me, that's uncalled for. There, there are some things, obviously, you don't do, but you'd never want to criticize the commander-in-chief, in this case being George Washington. And the same... Largely in part could be said, you know, by the time Thomas Paine came back to America in 1802, George Washington had been gone for almost three years. He died in December of 1799 at the age of 67. But even after Washington died at his funeral, um, a man by the name of Light Horse Harry Lee, or I should say Richard Henry Lee, uh, Robert E. Lee's father, was the one who said at uh, Washington's funeral, he said that he that Washington was first in the fellow hearts of his countrymen, first in war, pretty much first in everything. So it's fair to say that even as a new century, being the 19th century, has already uh, unfolded or unraveled, that many Americans still hold George Washington in the highest esteem, regardless of who he catered to, they just admired the fact that he was just this leader who could do no wrong, a leader who who didn't leave anything on the table to chance, a leader who valued his country and did everything there was to value the people below him. So yes, maybe Washington was a little bit of a Federalist, but it had nothing to do with political um, party glorification. Washington simply believed that a strong central government was essential and and ensuring that uh, the overall system of checks and balances would be uh, preserved, not just short-term, but long-term. Two weeks uh, after uh, returning to America, Paine wrote a series of letters warning Americans that the American Revolution's elegance was disappearing. In other words, he was afraid that this next generation would totally forget about the sacrifices that the previous generation had made during the American Revolution, and hey, I don't blame him. He didn't want that part of history to have been forgotten. And even to this day, we must always remember the sacrifices that not only our forefathers made in having officially declared their separation from England in 1776, but we must always remember the sacrifices that the men um laid on the line um, in ensuring our freedom, whether it was from firing the first shots heard around the world at um, Lexington and Concord April 1775 to the um, assault at Bunker Hill in June of 1775. I mean, I could go on and on, but another battle I think of where, um, where we literally had to lay it on the line to keep this uh, cause of independence afloat was at Trenton, December of 1776, victory or death, that was Washington's mission. So yes, for Thomas Paine, he's very worried that, that this new generation of Americans are going to forget the, um, the elegance of, the, of the, all the sacrifices that, it, that the previous generation had made in ensuring that the freedoms that were put into play are still in existence, not only in the present moment, but going down the road in the future. And, and another reason for why these letters were written was because it wasn't so much that the American Revolution's elegance was disappearing, but it also had to do with um, political factions evolving. These political factions weren't just confined to one political group, like Federalists, they were also, uh, it also applied to Jeffersonian Republicans, where each party is going above and beyond to seek control over the government, where the leaders are more interested in monopolizing um, or profiteering for personal gains versus uh, doing what is best for the country as a whole. I should point out that when George Washington gave his farewell address, he certainly did warn about the dangers of political parties and what factions they could cause let alone turmoil and maybe he would uh, be saying the same thing today if he were alive shaking his head in pure disbelief all right well just before thomas pain thomas pain himself returned to america there is something i want to point out here that was enacted when john adams was president and it did stir a lot of controversy and rightfully so what legislation did congress pass or rather, enact in seventeen eight in seventeen ninety eight, while Thomas Paine was still overseas in France. Congress enacted um, what what was called the Alien and Sedition Act. The legislation was passed by a Federalist-controlled Congress, which gave President John Adams absolute power, absolute meaning unlimited powers, in deporting. Immigrants, most notably French people, who came over to America in the wake of the French Revolution, only for these people to openly criticize the U.S. government. Well, it's one thing to um, disagree on something with regards to what maybe your government isn't doing a good job of. But for John Adams, people who were coming over to, most notably from France, over to America... Because they want a better life, and they have escaped uh, the horrors of what the French Revolution has done—not just so much guillotine King Louis the Sixteenth and his wife Queen Marie Antoinette—knowing just how many um, moderates were uh, jailed or, or persecuted, all because they uh, didn't agree with everything the Jacobins, uh, those uh, what we would now think of as left-wing radicals, uh, stood for. So here you've got people in France, just ordinary citizens, coming over to America seeking a better life, but yet they are starting to question certain things about our government. Well, John Adams sees that as a threat. He sees it as a threat more so from a legalistic standpoint. We must remember that John Adams was a lawyer, and a very, very skilled lawyer. Of course, when I think of John Adams from a lawyer um, perspective, I think of when he defended the... um, eight soldiers and their uh, commanding officer during the Boston Massacre trials. Remember, we have John Adams to thank for um, for that uh, concept where everyone is guaranteed the right to a fair trial. Sure, there were plenty of people in Boston in 1770 who did not feel as though those eight soldiers and their commanding officer deserved a trial. But he took on the case because he felt that somebody needed to represent the accused and that the accused deserved to have um, their uh, case brought before a a court or before a judge and a group of jurors, jurymen. We have to remember there were no such thing as female jurors at that time. But uh, for John Adams, he is thinking as if he is still a lawyer while being president of the United States. John Adams does not believe... it's. For John Adams, if somebody's going to criticize the United States government, they need to have probable cause. In other words, they need to have uh, sufficient um, proof, they need to have their facts straight. It's one thing to make an accusation about your government in terms of your government maybe not doing a good job in a particular area, but for John Adams, if you don't have physical proof as to why the government's not doing their job in in a particular field, then you really don't have any business making an accusation to begin with. So people who questioned the government from everyday ordinary people to media publishers who wrote articles criticizing Adams's administration and the government in general, those people were seen as a threat. They were prosecuted. In many instances, um, journalists were jailed all because they disliked um, something that Adams' administration had done. Is this fair to say that there are violations behind this legislation? Thomas Paine, after returning to America, assailed um, the uh, Alien and Sedition Acts by voicing his opinion to where he felt that people's fundamental rights had been abused or I should say deprived, all in the name of voicing differences in opinions. Thomas Paine saw this as a violation of free speech, and those um, who were in the anti-federalist camp or Jeffersonian re- Republicans would have agreed to, most notably Thomas Jefferson. When John Adams was president, Thomas Jefferson was his vice president. And let's keep this in mind, folks. Uh, for a short period of time in the early years of our republic's existence, The president and the vice president were not on the same ticket. Whoever was runner-up second place was the vice president. So John Adams is a Federalist, President of the United States, Thomas Jefferson, Vice President, the Anti-Federalist. Thomas Jefferson questioned John Adams on many of occasions with the Alien and Sedition Act, stating that You know, you are trampling on people's rights to free speech. You may not have to like how they're questioning the government, but you can't take away their right to voice their opinion. What literary work of Paine's had angered many in America during his time overseas? I think this one's a a no-brainer, but I'm going to mention it again. Age of Reason men from thomas jefferson to dr benjamin rush along with other uh, noteworthy uh, forefather figures and just the the public in general refused to associate themselves with pain as his attacks on church exceeded boundaries many forefathers did favor freedom of religion and you know it is fair to say that they also favored something else here which i'll mention in a moment But what many of our forefathers were very thankful for was that the church, as an institution, had done so much good for people, regardless of their faith, whether they were Methodist or Baptist, Episcopalian, or in England they would still be referred to as an Anglican, that church itself had... um, Its leaders and uh, clergy had actually done a great job of looking after people, even those who were of a destitute and poor status in society. But Thomas Paine didn't see it this way. Because his attacks on church, as I said, exceeded boundaries. He didn't know where to, to, to put it to a halt. He questioned everything. I'm beginning to wonder if maybe Thomas Paine is losing his mind. Many of our forefathers did favor freedom of religion, but they felt that the church leaders had an obligation to look over their congregations through means of religious teachings, as long as a separation of church and state was adhered to. Okay, so as long as the state, being the government, isn't going to tell the church how to teach its um, biblical findings or sermons to its congregation, then we're okay. And as long as the church doesn't tell the state how to go about um, passing legislation that will benefit the greater people or the greater public of, uh, of those living in Virginia, then we're all right. As long as, uh, as, long as both um, institutions are not interfering with one another's uh, personal affairs, that's all that matters. But Thomas Paine doesn't even see it that way for himself. No matter where Thomas Paine went upon returning to America, he wasn't welcomed, largely in part because of what Age of Reason exposed. But for the wrong reasons, Paine also attacked Jesus and the four apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, for reasons seen by a vast majority of Americans as totally irrelevant. See? Here's another example where maybe Thomas Paine has been saying too much on his mind and over time it is coming to backfire on him. Okay, well, um, what what makes 1804 unique? Well, we're in the midst of another um, presidential election, so Thomas Jefferson's up for re-election. Does a forefather of ours die in 1804? yes but why is this one important well the man who uh, was a forefather of ours he signed the united states constitution he even served in the american revolutionary war served right below george washington matter of fact george washington had the utmost regards for this man this man also would go on to serve in washington's cabinet And he became an arch nemesis rival of Thomas Jefferson's. Alexander Hamilton, ring a bell? How did Alexander Hamilton die, folks? He and Aaron Burr, Jefferson's vice president, and folks, the vice president shot Alexander Hamilton. This is a whole other story unto itself, but for those of you who would like to know a little bit of uh, quick history here, um, Aaron Burr, Actually, I take it back. Uh, Alexander Hamilton married into the uh, Schuyler family, so his wife, her mate, her name was Peggy Schuyler Hamilton, or actually Elizabeth Schuyler. I take it back. Uh, Sky, there is a county in New York called Schuyler County in New York State in the Finger Lakes region. That's where uh, Watkins Glen is, um, and then there's a uh, Schuylerville, uh, New York, outside of Albany. So it's named in honor of the uh, Schuyler family. Um, Mr. Schuyler uh, was uh, a prominent officer in the American Revolution. Well, Aaron Burr um, ended up defeating Alexander Hamilton's father-in-law in a political election uh, to represent uh, a Senate U.S. Senate seat in New York. Hamilton felt as though Burr um, had pretty much ruined his father-in-law's reputation, and. Burr and Hamilton um, pretty much had it out for one another to the point where they couldn't stand each other and felt the best way to resolve the problem was to engage in a duel. And dueling was simply a way to resolve existing conflicts between uh, families who were at each other's throats. Dueling was a gentleman's way to resolve the problems and as I've said before from other podcasts, and I'll mention it here again, um, it was one thing for somebody to show up and and engage in a duel, if they weren't ready to um, fire their shot, they would just simply unload their pistol and drop the bullets onto the ground. It was their way of saying, okay, I showed up, but it just so happens that today I'm not ready to fire. If you didn't show up, you were frowned upon, viewed as a coward, wimp, chicken. So even if you didn't want to fire, you better have at least shown up, and this way you made it clear to your opponent that you weren't going to back down, but it just wasn't going to be on this day. Well, in the end, both men uh, met in a place called Weehawken, New Jersey, up in uh, the northern part of the state, not far from uh, New York City, in the Wall Street area. And both men um, engaged in the action. Hamilton missed, Burr shot fired, and pretty much got Hamilton to where he uh, died a day or two later. So that was one big thing that happened in 1804, Alexander Hamilton's death. He was only 49 years old. But on um, the evening of Christmas Eve, 1804, at around 8 o'clock in the evening, someone fired a bullet that crashed through a window pane near the chair where Thomas Paine himself was sitting. Believe it or not, folks, an, assassinate, an, an assassination attempt had been, made, had been made on Thomas Paine's life. I did not know just, really, just how much hated, how much how many people hated Thomas Paine until I read this book, most notably even by the time he returned back to America at the start of the 19th century. Well, I should just keep in mind that uh, not all of our forefathers got to die uh, peacefully, and, and not just peacefully in terms of not being inflicted with a medical condition, but dying peacefully knowing that countless people out there still revered someone for who they were. In this case with Thomas Paine, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe he won't go as peacefully as we would have thought. So, whom, would have, uh, whom had unsuccessfully tried to take out Thomas Paine? Was it anyone from the Federalist Party? Was it anyone from the Anti-Federalist Party, or was it just a a random uh, individual who might have known Thomas Paine at some other time? The answer is choice C, uh, a random individual who did happen to know uh, who Thomas Paine was in person, and this man's name was uh, Christopher Derrick. It turns out that Christopher Derrick was a former tenant farmer of Thomas Paine's, whom had been dismissed by Payne due to heavy drinking and not properly tending the fields. Hey, you know, Thomas Payne is hiring people to, to uh, help him out. He's not hiring people that uh, shouldn't be doing the opposite, like taking advantage of him and, not, and simply just not doing their job. Can you blame Thomas Payne for not firing this individual? No. But do we excuse this man's emotions and... And him wanting to um, hurt Thomas Paine? No. But of course, I think it's fair to say even in 1804, there are plenty of people out there. Of course, the population of the United States is nowhere like it is today in 1804, but there are people even in the the early part of the 19th century who do not want to uh, resolve their problems peacefully with someone that they have had uh, a falling out with. Despite the assassin's arrest, and um, Christopher Derrick was arrested, what I found interesting, but there was probably a reason for this, that Thomas Paine himself did not press charges, the assassin went away for good. So, in other words, by not pressing any charges, Thomas Paine might have spared himself from any other assassination attempts. Maybe not just assassination attempts, but for all we know, Christopher Derrick could have had ties to other men whom did not like Thomas Paine, who would have um, followed in um, in uh, Mr. Derrick's uh, footsteps. Now, uh, prior to Thomas Paine's assassination in the summer of 1803, a friend of his from uh, France, he's still in France, but his wife and three sons come over to America uh, from France to avoid persecution. Um, Mr. Nicolas de Bonneville, his uh, wife and three sons are sent over to America to avoid persecution. Uh, Madame Marguerite Bonneville and her three sons appeared in New York where Payne had reconnected with them. Payne provided the mother and boys with 60 acres of land on his new Rochelle farm to enable the Bonneville family that they would have a better life and that they would have better living conditions. In other words, they would have a more adequate um, home, a more adequate roof that would provide greater stability than what they probably had in France. See, this is a, a side of Thomas Paine that we forget. Thomas Paine is very compassionate. Yes, we may not like all of his writings. Yes, some of his writings were vital and well respected by many but um, despite what we think we do need to keep in mind that he is a very compassionate individual looking after people whom um, were displaced under circumstances that they had no control over Uh, would Thomas Paine continue publishing works attacking organized religion after returning to America in 1802 yes he did and I think this is another example of where maybe he was saying more on his mind than he should have been. The works published by Payne were met with skepticism by people from all over, whom viewed the attacks as a literary form of extremism that saw no boundaries. Many outside felt as though Payne didn't want resolution, but instead complete fault. I actually agree here with the outsiders. What is Thomas Paine trying to get at? He's writing, to me, he's writing articles now that are a losing cause. Isn't Paine himself attacking one of the um, core components behind the First Amendment to the Constitution? And what is it? It's not just so much free speech, not so much freedom of the press or the right to assemble and petition, but freedom of religion. People should be allowed to worship freely, and if they're happy with their uh, creator, not just God, but if they're happy with their minister and the um, uh, clergy uh, that um, that is ab- high above in the church, then why should there be any conflict? Sure, you might have a difference or two, but if you can work it out peacefully, then you know that you can still practice your faith um, successfully. Thomas Paine just doesn't seem to see it that way. In the fall of 1804, Thomas Paine enrolled all of uh, Marguerite uh, Bonville's sons into a boarding school. Mrs. Bonville was able to move to the city, a.k.a. New York City, where she went about teaching French to uh, people in general. So Paine is now pretty much by himself. Lonely. And probably feeling depressed. Did anything Paine publish from 1802 onward come with praise from people in america no uh, simply in part because Paine's works were seen by many as being out of touch irrelevant I, and i would agree the fall of 1806 thomas Payne's, uh sanity or i should say well-being endured a final blow and to me this this is one that truly does hurt He was denied by town officials the right to vote in New Rochelle, where he resided, prior to and after coming back from Europe. Payne took the matter to the local district attorney, but in the end came away empty. He felt as though there had been a betrayal of the most basic right, and that is the right to vote. I can, you know, and I'm sure for Payne now, he's beginning to wonder, does his life really matter? What did Thomas Paine endure medically in late July 1806? Did he endure um, rheumatoid arthritis? Did he um, suffer a stroke? He suffered a stroke, folks. He suffered a stroke so bad that it impaired his abilities to get in and out of bed on his own. Of course, we have to remember remember, folks, even in the early nineteenth century, we're not anywhere close to knowing what causes strokes. So there's very little that the medical profession could do to help someone whom has survived a stroke. You know, nowadays when one has a stroke, depending on how good their recovery is, if they can if they do make a strong recovery, they are able to um Provide far more rehabilitation services in terms of walking and moving around to um, improving um, coordination with um, one arm over the other because you know strokes can um, strokes can start um, in they don't always have to be uh, going in one direction. Uh, but the bottom line is there was no sheltering arms of uh, therapeutical centers in Thomas Paine's day. He was pretty much left on his own. Doesn't make it right, but that's what, um, when you have limited medical resources of the day and you don't know a whole lot, then there's really not a whole lot that can be done for you. But, um, but there were people who did help Thomas Paine out, which was nice, from a local baker to a young patriot, to to a young portrait painter, rather, I should say, and a tavern keeper. They all took turns caring for Thomas Paine, but with different results. Obviously, Thomas Paine is lacking funds of his own, but he did turn to um, acquaintances whom were able to sell his remaining properties in Bordentown, New Jersey, which is not far from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or uh, property, rather, I should say, these funds that were obtained from selling his property in Bordentown, New Jersey, the funds that were obtained from the sale, um, they went to uh, pay for a permanent room and board in Greenwich Village, north of New York City, where Thomas Paine uh, would take up um, would take up uh, new uh, living um, quarters uh, that would uh, he had a more permanent place to. Um, reside uh, in the aftermath of his stroke but sadly uh, not long after he relocated to Greenwich Village he suffered another stroke and it left him confined to a chair think about it folks it's being confined to a chair is kind of like equivalent being confined to a bed Bed bedridden Thomas Paine can't he can't get up you know this is where we can't take life for granted folks here he's left in a chair And it's not just stuck in a chair, folks. Those who cared for him saw him engage in unforeseen fears of anger, resulting in his state of helplessness. He's he's not taking his anger out on someone caring for him. He's taking his anger out on the fact that he's been left pretty much paralyzed, confined to a chair that he can't do the things that he once was able to do, write literary works, regardless of what people thought. All of a sudden now he feels as though he's been robbed. And hey, if, you, if we were in his shoes, we probably would feel the same way too, considering if we were alive at the start of the 19th century, knowing that there really was not a whole lot uh, to have been known on what caused strokes and how one could recover from a stroke in terms of uh, therapy. January of 1809, friends of Payne's, friends of Thomas Paine's hired an attendant to look after him. He went as far as writing a will, which also included his acknowledgement of personal literary triumphs like common sense. Paine's uh, new Rochelle property was distributed to different peoples, including half of the proceeds sold on the new Rochelle property, uh, going to uh, Mrs. Bonneville in the form of a trust to her three sons. Well, hey, this is this is nice that uh, Mrs. Bonneville um, and her three sons, that a trust is going to be set up for her three sons, so that they have a, a better future um, at stake and they won't be left to fend. For themselves to, to the point where they get old enough and wonder, hey, where are we going to live? Are we going to be forced out on the streets? Are we going to struggle to have a roof under our, um, are we going to struggle to have a roof um, below us, or above us, rather, I should say? What took place on June 8, 1809? Well, let me ask you this. Who is uh, President of the United States in June of 1809? Is Thomas Jefferson still president, or have we elected, or has America elected a new president? Well, America elected a new president, and that new president was sworn in in uh, March of 1809, being Mr. James Madison of Virginia, whom was uh, Jefferson's vice president in uh, Jefferson's second term. Jefferson um, relieved Aaron Burr of his duties and uh, took on Mr. James Madison. So, Thomas Jefferson is now back in Monticello, and James Madison is president, but uh, as for what takes place on June 8, 1809, sadly, uh, Thomas Paine died. He died at 8 a.m. on June 8, 1809. He lived to be 72 years old. It's fair to say that he died from uh, complications of, um, of strokes, Thomas Paine, before his death, had requested that a Quaker neighbor of his handle funeral services at a nearby Quaker cemetery. Well, remember, Thomas Paine's mother was Anglican and his father was a Quaker. Thomas Paine has not forgotten the uh, the religious heritage upbringings um, that he um, um, grew up under uh, during his time in Tetford, England. But sadly, um, the um fellow who was a Quaker, rejected um, Thomas Paine's request, and not only did he reject it, but the congregation rejected uh, Thomas Paine's request as well prior to his death. Even his, who he thought were his friends from the uh, Quaker uh, church now no longer respect him. This is, a, this is a tragedy, folks. So who's going to coordinate his uh, funeral services? Ah, Mrs. Marguerite Bonneville, she coordinates the funeral arrangements for Thomas Paine, including buying his mahogany casket. I'm glad that somebody cared enough about him. One of Mrs. Bonneville's sons attended the service, including fewer than ten other people. Maybe that's what Thomas Paine wanted. He knew that as he was dying that there were not many people out there who really liked him anymore. Even those from the Revolutionary War era that were still alive seemed to have had a falling out with him, but actually, but obviously, Mrs. Bonneville didn't, and neither did her children. Most people in America simply chose to forget, chose to forget Thomas Paine altogether, but yet remembered him for his heroism and common sense to the American crisis during times of uplifting when morale itself had reached an all-time low for America's people in their struggle for independence. So yes, there are certain um, things that uh, the American people will want to remember Thomas Paine for, which are great. But at the same time, obviously there have been other works, especially when he was away overseas in Europe, to when he came back to America that have uh, altered many people's minds in the opposite direction. Are there any statues and busts of Thomas Paine in the United States? Yes. But one couldn't find them in such places like Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, or Washington, D.C. Okay, if you can't find them in Philadelphia or in uh, New York City, well, I take it back, you can't, or if you can't find them in Philadelphia or in Washington, D.C., where are you going to have to go? Well, um, one would need to go to uh, places like Bordentown and Morristown, New Jersey, where statues of Payne can be found, given he resided in both communities. There is only one bust of Thomas Paine, which sits, or rather I should say, stands atop a memorial column in New Rochelle, New York, located on the site of Payne's farm at the Thomas Paine National Historical Association. So there you have it, folks, three. That is the total number of monuments in America honoring Thomas Paine. Okay? All right, so we, we've established that there are um, monuments, less than five, in America honoring Thomas Paine. Do uh, European nations like France and England have any statues of Thomas Paine? Yes, to both nations. France has one statue located in the Parc mont on the southern edge of Paris. The statue's base has a description worded worded in English as follows. This is in quotes, folks. English by birth, French citizen by decree, and American American by adoption. Well, he was born in England. America adopted him when he came over in in late 1774, thanks to uh, the connection he established with Benjamin Franklin. And America welcomed him with um and accepted his uh valiant works of common sense and the American crisis and other American crisis essays that were uh essential in um in times of um in times of uncertainty during the war and then a uh, French citizen when he um goes over to France to try to inspire the French in their um quest for uh living under a um a reformed system of government where uh, the king and the uh, nobility and the landed gentry didn't control everything. As for uh, England, there are two statues of Paine. One is found in Lewis, L-E-W-E-S, Lewis, England, where he made many of his friends, most notably Thomas Cleo um, Rickman, whom uh, inspired uh, Thomas Paine to um, go about publishing articles and pamphlets that uh, championed uh, reforms. Whereas the other statue is located on King Street in Tetford, his birthplace. And believe it or not, folks, to this day, there still remains a sector of people in Tetford whom view him as a traitor. You think about it, all these years later, you would have to think that many of these people in the present day would just Put aside personal thoughts and realize. Okay, yes, he may have ha- he may have hailed from England. Maybe he didn't have the greatest upbringing, but he made a name for himself. Did he inspire a revolution? In terms of uh, questioning <laughs> the monarchy, the, yes, in the eyes of many English of that day and time, was considered treasonous. Yes, traitorous. But the bottom line is, is that sometimes you have to wonder is it still worth holding a grudge even after all these years later, after 200 some years later? But I think we all should be reminded that grudges can still remain on people's shoulders for long, long periods of time and don't go away overnight. Many of you all probably don't know who this person is, but After I tell you all who this person is, you're going to um, appreciate it even more. My wife and I have seen this person uh, speak in Williamsburg. And so for those of you um, whom I've given uh, my podcast cards to who work at Colonial Williamsburg, you are going to be uh, very appreciative of this. Who exactly is Gowan Pamphlet? he was an african american ordained baptist minister whom was the first of his race to preach the gospel being an ordained minister and the reason why he took up the the reason why he um switched his last name to that of pamphlet was because he was inspired by thomas paine's famous pamphlet of common sense Hence, Gowan Pamphlet took Payne's work and adopted the word pamphlet as a means of inspiration. He preached in Williamsburg, Virginia, where his congregation later became known as the First Baptist Church. And I must say, folks, um, for those of you who don't know, excavators and archaeologists have actually uncovered the site where the uh, First African American Baptist Church in Virginia stood. And and their goal is to restore it to uh, what it would have um, looked like in its heyday. And there is a church not far from Colonial Williamsburg uh, called First Baptist uh, Church. All right, well, this is our uh, last question, folks, uh, for this uh, podcast series. Okay, we all know Thomas Paine died on... um, that he died on June 8, 1809, at the age of 72. Where exactly is Thomas Paine buried? Does anybody want to take a guess? Where do you all think Thomas Paine is buried? Well, for starters, he was originally buried in New Rochelle, New York. But a decade after his passing, an unidentified English journalist ventured onto Paine's estate. He dug up Thomas Paine's remains by taking them back to England, where they never resurfaced. Think about this, folks. We don't even know where Thomas Paine's remains are. For all we know, they pro- the man died over two hundred and thirteen years ago, so his his remains have, are pretty much um, gone. So we don't. I mean, we've got three, we've got two busts and a statue of him in America. And there are uh, three statues, one in France and two in England, so that's really six statues of uh, Thomas Paine worldwide. Is it fair to say that the uh, statues, include along with learning about Thomas Paine, are enough to keep his spirits alive? To me, they are. But Paine's legacy still remains... Paine, well... Paine's legacy still remains unsolved by many to this day. In other words, there still are people out there who really aren't 100% sh- aren't 100% sure where he stands in the overall realm of achievements. Well, he did help inspire a revolution, not just in America, but overseas in France. He kept the American uh revolutions uh flames alive by writing uh, literary works that were that were significant especially the American crisis these are the times that try men's souls well if you ask me what do I think of Thomas Paine well I think Thomas Paine for one can't be forgotten you know yes he may not have signed the Declaration of Independence he may not have signed the United States Constitution but he fought valiantly he never forgot his upbringings where he came from. He never forgot all the um, injustices that that were endured by so many of his uh, rank and file in Tetford. To me, I think it's a miracle he made it out of there. He met Benjamin Franklin at the right place and right time. Had it not been for Benjamin Franklin, Thomas, Jeff- Thomas Paine would probably never have made it over. Sure, we may have heard about some form of literary work but would it have gotten uh, the recognition in america maybe but by doing it all in america versus england did uh, avoid him from being uh, persecuted simply in part because he wrote those articles common sense and the american crisis under uh, pseudonym names so in my opinion thomas paine is a hero i mean he's a hero in the sense of keeping the flames of revolution alive on the other hand, I do have to um, understand where other forefathers came from. Do I think the Age of Reason was um, a vicious attack on uh, the Church itself? Yes. Do I think his uh, writings titled Letters to Washington was appropriate? No. So there again, Thomas Paine wasn't the only one of our forefathers who might have been guilty of, sa- of saying too much that was on his mind. But Thomas Paine must not be forgotten, because his legacy should live on, not just in the present, but for the future. If we want to um, understand why, um, if we want to understand just how important uh, common sense was all about and the American crisis, if we really want to be reminded of the fact when we say these are the times that try men's souls, We need to understand what sacrifices they were having to make. We need to understand these trials and tribulations. That's what Thomas Paine was about, understanding trials and tribulations and overcoming them. So, I don't know if if I put him up there with Thomas Jefferson or George Washington, but Paine does belong somewhere up there with other forefathers. I don't know if if I'm the right one to... uh, give him the ranking where he goes but but he does belong there he can't be forgotten well I have appreciate thank you all for listening not just for this uh, segment but for uh, being a part of this series and when I'm on the air again next we're gonna begin a new series I don't know which one it will be but I have some ideas in mind but I will certainly make sure like with all the other ones I've done that they are relevant educational and that we all come away learning something new that we didn't know before And yes, maybe I've spent uh, many of times discussing the American Revolution and its leaders, or a battle. But even that subject has a story to tell on itself, because it's more than just being out on the battlefield and hearing your commanding officer say, take aim, present arms, fire. That's not what it's all about. But again, I look forward to being back on the air next time with you all. And when I am on the air, we are going to talk about a new series. And once again, I will make sure to make it worth your all's while. Thank you again uh, for being such great listeners. Uh, Continue to get that word out. Thank you for now, and stay safe.